Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, so we're going to open up God's Word at 1 Samuel 17. You can click there. It's on page 1 for me. Um, Verse 1, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle. And they are gathered at Socho, which belongs to Judah, and they encamped between Socho and Azekah, and in Ephim's Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley in between them, and a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines, named Goliath, from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. And now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. First of all, in any of the cartoons, did Goliath have a shield-bearer walk out with him? Right? Right off the bat, you're like, okay, two versus one. It's not just one person on the field, there's two. And you always hear David and Goliath. It was David and Goliath and his shield bearer. And that's just like not fair at all, but we'll get into that. Um, David is going to rise to prominence. Uh, we know this story really well. Uh, it's often David and Goliath is in popular culture. It's referred to as the big, the little versus the big. And so when we hear it's a David and Goliath story, it's the little person taking on the big person. Um, and, and, it, and it gets used that way in the world, which makes me suspect. Why does the world paint this story off such? And is that biblically accurate? And is that how we should think about this story? So I want to try to dig in and pull this apart a little bit. The Philistines we've seen in Samuel are regular attackers of God's people. They're aggressive. They steal from them. Uh, we know that their king who was conquered earlier in Samuel is someone who is a, a killer, a killer of children. Uh, we know these soldiers are brutal and violent. And Israel has risen its head under Saul, and the Philistines have tried to smack it down again and again. Verse 2 talks about the Valley of Elah. I'm not going to get into all the other places, but essentially the Valley of Elah is still today farmland. It looks today largely what it looked like uh, three to 4,000 years ago. So first of all, if we do go visit Israel here next summer, this is a really cool spot to visit because it still generally looks like it did. And the the valley in between creates the two hills. So we see in verse 3 that the writer is trying to explain to us that there's a rise on either side. When two armies are lined up this way, strategically, whoever charges has now got the low ground and they're at a severe disadvantage. So in the ancient world, this is a standoff because neither side wants to charge through this valley where 
the ranged units can just pick your army apart. It's a really tough situation. You want to flank another army, come up behind them, hit them on level ground, but you never want to charge up a hill at another army. And frankly, that's still kind of true today. It really has never changed. So what we've got in verse 3 is this standoff between the two armies. A champion in verse 4, literally in the Hebrew, that word means middleman. They have a middleman that stands between the armies. So instead of the whole army charging, this middleman comes out, and literally he's the man between two armies. Saul and Israel had a champion in God Almighty, and in the last chapter they rejected their champion. The Philistines have a champion in Goliath of Gath, and they still stand behind their champion. So at this point, Israel's at a spot where they really don't have a champion. And we got these two armies fighting, um, and, and they're both using their strength in the sense that they're using human strength. It used to be a lopsided thing when Israel fought one of these countries because they had God on their side and they were absolute routes. But they don't necessarily have God on their side under Saul. So we've got a standoff. Really, you know, we've, we've seen mostly Israel have success in battle. And here they got this neutral draw. Goliath of Gath, the, the, word, the Hebrew word for Goliath, there is a Hebrew word for it. It actually means nudity, the naked one or the revealed one. Um, so, but the root of it, most people feel like Goliath is a Philistine word or it has kind of Phoenician roots. Or, um, but the Hebrew root word in the, in the Hebrew uh, is, is for getting naked. So whatever the word is for taking off your clothes. That's what Goliath means in the Hebrew. It's interesting because at the end of the story, looking all the way at the end, the end result of the story of Goliath is all of his clothes get taken off. Like they take his armor and they steal it, leaving him naked on the battlefield. So the word then comes to mean that um, with the Hebrew traditions. Six cubits in a span. How tall is that? Depending on who you talk to because a cubit is from elbow to the tip of the finger. So if you take six of those, you're somewhere between eight and nine feet tall. So he's a big guy, right? Um, we know that at 5,000 shekels, that translates to about 300 pounds of weapons and armor if you tally all those numbers together. So if you're used to carrying 300-pound backs, you know what that feels like. But this is a big guy that's capable of carrying a big amount of weight. So in, in, in warfare, the thicker my armor is, the more it's going to have swords bounce off it. So what you have is Goliath is the ancient world version of a Sherman tank. You can't really hit the guy because his armor's too thick. He's got bronze on his legs. You can't hit him in the legs. can't hit him in the chest. He's got a helmet on his head. Where are you going to hit this guy? He's, he's this moving, invulnerable force. And giants regularly show up throughout the Bible. We've seen a few of them. The world of giants in the ancient world is not just a biblical concept. So this is one of the things people attack is, well, there's no such thing as giants. You know, you're, you have to ignore all of ancient history if you want to say that. You really have to ignore, ignore what we call today as gigantism. Like there's actually a phenomena where there's a change in the DNA where human beings don't stop growing after puberty. They just keep growing. It's called gigantism. So... What we see that's unique in the Bible is it seems like there's a whole family of these giants that come about, but a nine-foot giant is not like a 50-foot-tall giant. Like, so let's bring the cartoon character back down to size. Nine-foot is still really intimidating, um, but ancient scholars Herodotus, Dionysus, Sicilus, Pliny, 
all refer to giants in the ancient world, and they all refer to giants being part of this group of Philistines. So when it says Goliath from Gath, the people of Gath are known to be larger people. So they ate really good food, or there's a DNA trend in that world where the largest male in an ancient society tends to have as many spouses as he wants. So the Philistines were trying to breed people like Goliath. And we're going to see that that's a thread that gets picked up on later in Samuel. Uh, we know that if we want to look at the biblical version of giants, you can go all the way back to Genesis 6, verse 4. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the, gods, the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children by them, those who were mighty men of old and men of renown. So this is right before Noah's flood. It's one of the reasons for Noah's flood is that this was happening all over the ancient world pre-flood. And when it says there were giants in those days and also after the flood, it means some of that behavior continued after the flood as people started to repopulate the earth. So there's this idea that there's something spiritual about giants that's not good. But the Bible doesn't get into it that much, so I'm not going to get into it that much either. But there's something here about it. Uh, the, the giants have been presented as wicked at every step in the Word of God. So they just look at that and they see that there's something wrong. Deuteronomy 2.11, they were also regarded as giants like the Anakim, but the Moabites call them the Emim. So who were the Anakim? So later, after the flood, we see these giants popping again in Deuteronomy. Then in Deuteronomy 1.8, if you want to know who the Anakim are, the Israelites are looking to go charge into the Holy Land, and they say, where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, these people are greater and taller than we are. These cities are great and fortified up to the heavens. They have taller walls. Moreover, we've seen the sons of the Anakim there. So as they're looking to march into the Holy Land from the south, there's this account that there's entire cities of people that are growing larger than the Israelites are. So there's these kind of defiant groups of people, and they're doing this kind of genetic breeding or modification that causes these larger groups of people. Then in Joshua 11, 12, Joshua, Joshua utterly destroys all of them with their cities. So we see the word destroy there. Again, it doesn't mean kills every person. It means the cities are destroyed and the people are driven out because here we are fighting Goliath of Gath, which means some of them survived. So there was none of the Anakims left in the land of the children of Israel. The only place they remained was Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod, and that's where they remained. So we have this thread through the word of God so far of that sort of thing kind of happening where there are Anakim, they live in these cities. So when we see Goliath of Gath here, we know this is part of a larger narrative of God's people coming against these kinds of wicked people that are doing wicked things and they live in these kinds of cities that are dedicated uh, to gods other than Yahweh. So now here they are again attacking Israel. Once again, we have these people being the aggressors in a situation. And then when they talk about the staff and the spirit being like a weaver's beam, I'm going to assume we're all, we all know what a weaver's beam is. Well, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to assume we all know what it is. If you look at a loom, you know, with all the threads coming down, you will weave your thread through the weaver's thing, and then there's this huge, like, baseball bat club that you pat that thing down into whatever textile you're making. And it has to be fairly heavy because you really want to pack that thread down evenly across the loom so your, your designs don't get all out of whack. So a weaver's beam would be a big, thick rod that would go through a whole loom. 
or it's big, right? So there's no mention of Goliath's sword yet, but it does show up at the end of the fight. He's also carrying a sword. Javelin on his back, staff like a weaver's beam, and a sword. So not only is he a Sherman tank, he's loaded with missiles. And he's, he's got all the armaments of the ancient world. He's doing everything but a chariot, but it'd be hard to find horses to pull him because he's a big, big guy. Then in verse 8 it says, Then he stood and he cried out to the armies of Israel, and he said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I, am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel to this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, this is the sad part, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 8 you know, Goliath's basically saying, why are you guys even here? What are you lining up as an army for if you don't even have a champion? So <laughs> Goliath comes out announcing that he represents all the Philistines. Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? So he's representing all the Philistines. He is their king or their leader. And he stands in that position and claims that position. So as a champion or a man in the middle... He's coming out as a leader of the Philistines to stand in front of his army and claim the day. Where is the other side of that equation? It's Saul, and he's hiding in a tent. Now, we should know about Saul that when we first met Saul, he was head and shoulders above every other Israelite. So the obvious choice of physical champion of Israel is the guy they've picked as king, Saul. Remember, he was taller than the rest of them. So as this happens day after day, they had to kind of be looking at Saul going, when are you going to go fight for us? When are you going to be the one that steps out in front of us and champions our cause? So the spirit is broken, not necessarily because of Israel, but when they heard these words, and when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. It doesn't tell us necessarily that um, it was Goliath that did it, but that they're dismayed in part because their king isn't acting like a king. He's backing off, and they're afraid because what's going to happen next? How does this work when there's no leader? There's no one that stands in the gap. And when he says, I defy the armies of Israel this day, that's more than just a challenge. It's an insult against the whole nation. You guys think you have armies. I defy your armies. A single person defying an entire group of people. And the challenge, of course, the desire to fight. To be dismayed is to have a broken spirit. And that breeds fear. To be afraid, the word is yare, means to revere something and it has a spiritual overtone. So you revere whatever you fear. And when it says they were dismayed and afraid, it's one thing to be downhearted. It's another thing to give your fear to something. Right? So it's two separate clauses that are put in there. Yare is the same word we get with Adam when he was in the Garden of Eden and he sinned. He was yare against Yahweh right? Hagar was at the well thinking, what do I do? I'm abandoned. I've been kicked out of my household. I'm about to die in the wilderness. She was Yare of her situation. She was terrified of what would happen to her next. Jacob was Yare of Esau, same word. He was scared of what Esau would do to him. And Joseph was Yare of Yahweh. That's a good thing. 
the fear of God. Genesis 42, 18, he proclaims, I fear God more than, more than Pharaoh or more than anything else. So whatever you fear, there's a, there's a connotation throughout the Bible of a worship that goes with fear. You are afraid of what you worship because if that thing's against you, what happens next? And they're not afraid of God here. They're afraid of Goliath. But we're all going to be afraid of something because we're, we're all trying to think what's going to happen next. And you have to be tuned into some of that sort of thing. So the if Israelites are afraid of a single person <laughs> and not about what the God of the universe is going to think about them. So this was Goliath's goal. He wanted to come out and discourage and make fear in the armies of Israel. Today, that's still the enemy's goal. If he can discourage believers and he can get them to be scared of something other than God, then the enemy wins. So this attempt to demoralize is exactly what Goliath's trying to get. It's winning. Um, and you got the head and shoulders king of Israel not going out. So this is not a good situation for, for Israel. But the leadership, leadership's contagious. Either there's leadership with courage and the people around that leader get courageous, or like with Saul... The leadership is cowardly, and the people around Saul become cowardly too. If that guy won't fight Goliath, who am I to fight Goliath? He's a head and shoulder above me. He's clearly more prepared to fight Goliath than me. And he won't go out and do it, so why should I? Um, but when you got a leader that puts themselves in the gap, then you think, I'm next in line, I'm right behind him. And suddenly there's courage. So this is the story we're, we're in today. Verse 12. Now David was the son of that Ephraim, Ephratite, Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And the man was old and advanced in years in the days of Saul, and the three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul into battle. So these first verses imply time has passed since the anointing of David, right? We got three sons that are now in the army before they were back home with Jesse. So time has passed. We don't know how much time, but think people have grown older. The names of the three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him, Abinadab, and then the third, Shammah. I like the name Shammah. If we have a third kid, I'm going to push that we name that kid Shammah. I just, what a great name. Jewish people knew how to name people. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Remember when we left David, he was kind of this on-call harp player? A lot of times in the ancient world, the harp player would play from behind a screen. So David would be, Saul would get upset, and they would call in the musicians, and they would kind of play for, the, for Saul, and he'd go, oh, I love that music, and he'd relax. But it's not necessarily, uh, being one of this little cadre of armor bearers didn't necessarily mean that Saul and David were buddies, but it did mean that he was going in to play a harp. Here's the other thing. When a young adolescent boy turns into an older adolescent boy, like the muscle and bone structure changes. So it's kind of hard to identify. Saul's not going to recognize David here in a second. But if he met David as like a 10, 12-year-old, and then he sees him again as a 15, 16-year-old, it is not uncommon. Like I had this as a middle school teacher all the time. Kids would come back later and go, hey, do you remember me? And I'd be like, no, I have, you don't look anything like any student I've ever had. But then they'd tell me who they were, and I'd be like, Oh, I can see it. I can. Your jaw popped out, and your forehead came out, and like I could. If I squished your face, I could see how you used to look like that seventh grader. So, um, so David occasionally would go in and feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So this is our second introduction to David. 
Chapter 16 was likely from another record, and Samuel, or the writer of Samuel, is composing these records together uh, and compiling the temple records into this book. So verses 12 through 15 seem to be kind of an insertion of the narrative that maybe came from another scroll. Either way, it's in the, in the, the, the thread here. And I think the idea that Jesse's older, again, time has passed. And then the second thing I think we can pull out of this is that he'd still come back, even though he's a heart player for Saul, he'd still come back and feed the sheep. And I just like how David, like, he doesn't abandon his duties. And he still takes care of his family. One of the commandments is honor your father and mother. So as David's father is getting old, he's still going back to help out once in a while. And I know a lot of us in this room like, have parents that we take care of. And that's such a godly, wonderful thing to take care of your parents in their old age. And David's kind of still doing that. And it's not easy. He couldn't just hop in an Uber and get back and forth. David had to hike it back and forth. So he's doing, that's a lot of work for him to go back and help take care of his dad's farm. But we see that in this kind of second introduction in verses 12 through 15, that David's just a, an obedient and, a, and an honoring son. And that's the kind of character he has. There's going to be a lot of good character traits with David, but don't miss that one. Um, verse 16, And the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. Now, 40 days is a season of testing. There were 40 days for the flood. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. Like, that idea of 40 days may not be a chronological 40 days, but it's basically like there was this season of testing for Israel. It went on for 40 days. Uh, and so we see that coming out, um, that period of testing. Psychologically, modern science shows that after about 30 days, you make something into a habit. So if you want to change a habit in your life, do it consistently for 30 days in a row. And then on the 31st day, if you skip it, like it'll bother you. Like there's something that chemically in your brain that shifts after 30 days. So 40 days makes something into a habit. And I, I just thought that was an interesting thought because they're getting abused by this guy verbally. And after 30 days, it's now a habit. After 40 days, they've just come to accept that the God of Israel and the people of Israel are not worthy anymore. They just ingrain it into their hearts. So you've got an entire army of people just living in cowardice, and they start to get used to it. We're just used to being cowards. We're used to cowering before our enemies. Psychologically, I think that's part of this story, too. It's not just David and Goliath. It's David and his God versus Goliath and the impact that he has on the entire nation of Israel. Right? The, the scales are a little different. So verse 17, Then J Jesse says to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephath of this dried grain, these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their household and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Fighting being both sitting on either side of these hills. So morning and evening, it's, it's interesting, like, if Goliath is coming out both morning and evening, it's almost like daily devotions, right? It's the same rhythm. I wake up in the morning and I read the Bible. I want to go to bed and be in the Bible and be meditating on the, the Word of God day and night. Their meditation is what the world's, world's saying to them. It's like they get up and they watch the Goliath News Network in the morning, and then they go to bed and turn on the Goliath News Network and pump that into their head again. And they're waking up and they're going to sleep 
with what the world has to say to them about who they are. Horrible habit for Israel to be in. Meanwhile, I love how the Bible sets this up. In contrast, here's this faithful young son who his dad says, go hook your brothers up. In the ancient armies, like, they didn't worry about feeding their armies all the time. Like David did, but that's unique of David, right? A lot of times armies, soldiers in the army were still fed by their families back at home. So it was extremely common so that your sons didn't die in an army, that you would bring food out to your sons, kind of like to counteract a siege, right? So you would, you would bring food out and make sure at least your family had something to eat while they served in the army. So David, being the youngest brother, gets to do that. He, his dad's command was to run to your brother to send these kind of gifts. But it's interesting how Jesse, it's not just to take your brothers in verse 17, but then he sends the cheeses. And whenever I see cheeses, I want to say stinky cheeses. But carry these 10 cheeses to the captain of their thousand. Why would he do that? If you look kind of at the text, one of the ways that a family would make sure their sons didn't get put on the front line is you'd hook up their captains, right? Because if their captain's, captain's getting a food source, you don't send that family out to the front lines because then your food source just got killed on the battlefield. So you send out the most impoverished poor people possible that don't have any resources and they're going to starve to death anyways. Those are the people you put in battle first. This is just kind of ancient world warfare. It sounds heartless and cruel, but the ancient world was heartless and cruel. It's just how it worked. But if you had wealthy families that are feeding not only their own sons, but the captains of the thousands, like two tiers worth of leaders, you keep those people back. And this is how Jesse's trying to keep his sons alive. So David's bringing that food not only to the brothers, but he's bringing it to their captains too. Um, and the captains probably got used to it. They're like, hey, here comes the stinky cheese man. And whoa, he's bringing more cheese, and we're really excited. And, and so if this was kind of a regular thing, then this would be like, David would be anticipated and welcomed by the people because he brought good food with him. Uh, cheese, um, anyways, that's just one take on it. You may think it's cheesy, um, but the idea that, that David is bringing cheese to the, the army would have been a huge benefit to not just his family, but to everybody around his family. A blessing. So David, verse 20, rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper and took the things and went with Jesse, went, went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and, and shouting for the battle for the Philistines and the, and the Israelites. And the, for Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper and ran to the army and came and greeted his brother. Hi, brothers. You ever meet little brothers like this? They're just so excited to see their big brothers, right? Hey, how you doing? What's going on? Can I hold your sword? You know, how's, how's the fight going? How's this happening? I'm not saying David did that, but he ran to his brothers. You see that? Uh, and he greeted them. Uh, he's enthusiastically carrying out the work. That he, his job is to carry an ephath of flour. That's a huge sack of grain, 40 pounds, plus 10 stinky cheeses, plus all this stuff. And he's running to do it with enthusiasm. This is the character of David. He gets something from his father to do. He does it with total enthusiasm and joy. And it's not the, the glamorous work. It's the messenger boy work. So he's told to do something, and he just does it, does it with a great heart. Uh, don't miss this in verse 20 either. When it says he rose early in the morning, that connotes a kind of enthusiasm and self-reliance. Nobody had to wake up David in the morning. He gets up on his own. 
and he wakes up early in the morning, meaning he's excited to do what he's doing that day. He gets to go see his brothers. It's not, I have to carry all this flour. It's, I get to go see my brothers. And there's a difference in how David approaches his work. And then it says, he left the sheep with a keeper. That's going to be a relevant point coming up. His brothers are going to accuse him of being irresponsible. So in verse 20, we need to note that before he walks away to do this other chore, he takes care of his primary responsibilities. I think this is really important. In the kingdom, we often guilt ourselves into doing things when there's responsibilities God's already given us. And David already has a flock to take care of. And he doesn't leave to go see his brothers enthusiastically before he takes care of his responsibilities. He left the sheep with a keeper and took things and went and just as commanded him. Nobody had to tell him to do that. He did it because it's the responsible thing to do. This is what good shepherds do. They don't leave their sheep without a shepherd. And again, the image of David and Jesus is so strong. <laughs> we have to catch some of these things. Jesus never leaves us without leaving someone in charge of us. Right? He didn't leave after his first coming without any church leadership. You know, he left the church with David and the, or with Peter and the disciples. He left people to watch after the flock. And he still does this today. He raises up people that get really excited about teaching the word, and he lets them be people that just continue to share the word of God with, for 2,000 years with the people of God. And he's always done that. David does the same kind of thing. Uh, verse 23, he sees his brothers and he talks with them. There's another little attribute of David, another clue as to his character. He just talks with people. It doesn't say that they talked about serious things. And frankly, when you hang out with soldiers, there's not often a lot of serious talk going on. So the fact that David could come into that situation and just chat with people, we're going to see that's a huge spiritual gift that he has to make people feel comfortable and to make people feel welcome. And as he gathers his own army later on, uh, we're going to see that this respect he has, these men that follow him are his elders, and many of them are maybe larger than he is. But it's just his ability to love and care for people that you know you're following somebody who cares more about you than himself. And it generates loyalty. There's a heart of love in David, respect, but he's also socially connected. He knows how to just gab with people. I wish I could do that better. I pray for that gift of gab. You know, there's people that just have it, right? And it, what a gift in the kingdom of God for people to just come in and be able to talk with them, verse 23. He just came and hung out and talked with them. What's going on? What are you doing? In the spirit of being dismayed and fearful, here comes David as this shining light. And just what a relief. He brings cheese. He brings cheese and conversation. What a blessing. Food. Friendship and fellowship. You know he's a guy of song. You know he's studied the word. He's, he's writing the psalms up in those hills. It's just great. And then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, naked by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words, so David heard them. It's the first time David hears this discouraging nonsense coming out of this giant. Okay, first of all, this is great writing. <laughs> like, the way this is set up, it, it's David's just chatting away, gabbing, and all of a sudden there's a stir in the crowd, and then the crowd goes quiet because they can hear this giant screaming at him from the valley, and David hears it. You can almost sense of, like, who's this idiot, right? And it's been 40 days of this. The whole army's just 
hushed. Ah, there it goes again. And their spirits are just going down. And the opposite things happen with David's heart. He's getting ticked off. Who does he think he is defying the armies of a living God? So it says, then as he talked with them. I like that. Then as he talked with them. So this is all happening kind of together. That image of this champion walking out and then there's no champion for Israel. I imagine that David, like in my head, he's got his back turned to Goliath and he hears it from behind him. And that like just visually I'm thinking that and I just imagine that like he just kind of stops and wonders what all the people in front of him are looking all fearful about and then he kind of turns around, sees this nine foot tall guy. So that terror grips the crowd and David hears it but he hasn't been conditioned for 40 years or 40 days to be terrified. He hasn't learned how to be terrified yet. It's a learned thing, right? If you've ever met a two-year-old, you know that like social like fear does not happen like in a child, right? They'll just drop their drawers and run around. Doesn't matter to them at all. So he's just hearing this and Goliath speaks according to the same words. He says what we just read. So he keeps saying the same thing day after day or something like it, right? And that was in verse 10. I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. So David hears them. The, the phrase there, so David heard them, in the Hebrew reads, Sama, David, Sama. It's an, it, it's, a, it's an amplified point. Sama, David, Sama. Like something stirred in his soul. This isn't just like a physical hearing. He heard it at a much deeper level. He heard it. What is going on here? It's like you walk in and you know something's wrong and then you hear it. So in the English, better translation is heard David heard. Hearing David heard this. Just like our hero, he just kind of lights up. And this is when David becomes the hero. He hears this and he rejects it. So to hear there with that emphasis is to hear with intelligence. It's a root word. It means he heard it in all senses. He not only heard the words Goliath was saying, he heard the spiritual battle that Goliath was challenging them to in the physical battle he was calling them to. He heard it in all senses of the word. So David heard this defiance. He heard the fear. He heard the whole situation, and he summed it up. So again, last time we saw David, he was bright-eyed, right? This is a bright-eyed person. He instantly gathers what's going on socially. He sees what's happening to his brothers in the army. He assesses the situation, and he is capable of hearing the whole thing right now. He knows what's going on. That's almost more of a superpower than being able to shoot a sling straight. Like to be able to walk into a room and just surmise what's going on here. Like there's a spiritual blessing on David that, that is nearly supernatural. But a savvy young man, he knows what's going on. And all the men of Israel, verse 24, when they saw the man fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So this is kind of mob thinking. When everybody starts running one direction, the human tendencies just run with them. Right? And they all start running and they're afraid. And here comes this giant with his lies. And they're just running away from it. Verse 25. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. It shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, give him his daughter, and give the father's health as an exception from taxes in Israel. Well, that's a lot of benefits. So Saul has been trying to recruit somebody to fight instead of fighting himself. He's trying to put it on somebody else. If you're called to do something for the Lord, don't get other people to do it. Do it. Do it yourself. 
Don't put that on somebody else. Saul has a duty that he's been called by the Lord to do, and he's abdicating his duty. And he's throwing all these rewards. Three things, really. Riches, money. <laughs> he's throwing money at it. His own daughter. You can marry into the royal family. And then he's offering tax-exempt status for the whole family. This is a great deal. All you got to do is throw your life on the line for a king that won't throw his life on the line for you. Not a good trade. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him saying, Well, what shall be done for this man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I like this. Like This is like David, like this little kid amongst men going like, Who's going to do this? And all these men know in their heart Dang, I wish I said that, you know? They know they should be that kind of man. Notice that David's not volunteering to go fight Goliath. Like, he's not saying, I'll go fight him yet. He will, but he starts really humming like, well, which of you is going to step up and do this? So he just comes in with that assumed question, well, somebody's going to fight this guy, right? He's maybe looking at his big brother, Eliab, and going, Eliab, are you going to fight him? Or he's looking at Shamar. Great name, no guts. Are you going to fight him? And his brothers are maybe like, why are you looking at me? What are you looking at me for? I'm not as tall as Saul. He's not fighting. Why should I? So David's words reflect his love for God. And look at how he sums this up. David fully recognizes this is a spiritual battle because if God's with us, we can't lose. He, t- he totally gets it. Who's going to fight the Philistine? That's one thing. And take away the reproach from Israel. This is about the reputation of a country that God has called his own. He's, he frames it spiritually when he says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Uncircumcised means this guy doesn't follow Yahweh. Who's this not following Yahweh Philistine that defies the armies of a living God? This is a spiritual battle. This is those who don't follow Yahweh versus those who do. David frames it that way, but the army of Israel and Saul, they frame it as a fight. They frame it in earthly terms. David frames it in heavenly terms consistent biblical hero kind of framing that we just see over and over. David just heard in verse 25, but he knows the immediate answer. Somebody must fight this giant. In how he asks and how he reframes it, I think he's trying to encourage the men around him. This is God's fight. Who's going to stand out and be God's fighter? And it's not me. I'm the stinky cheese man. Like, but who, who's going to do it? Who's the person that will finally do this? So in verse 25, <laughs> um, so the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? David reframes it in verse 26, this uncircumcised Philistine. See how David does that? This is brilliant leadership. In leadership, he's helping them frame the situation correctly. If we can see the situation correctly, we can fight the battle the right way. So they just say he's a man. David says, no, he's a not child of God guy. And in verse 25, they say defy Israel. And David reframes it. He defies the armies of the living God. It's not just defying you. He's defying the God that you say you serve. Right? In verse 25, it says the man who kills. In verse 26, David says the man who kills and takes away the reproach from Israel. You're doing more than just killing a giant. You're taking away this offense to God's people. So this is when you fight. 
The third use of the term living God in the entire Bible gets used right here. The first use of living God in the Bible is when the law was given, the Ten Commandments. It's given by a living God. The second use is in Joshua 3. By this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive everything out before you. When David uses the term living God, it had only been used two other times. When they got the law and when they started pushing these people out of the land. And he's bringing this up, I think, as a way to say, remember, you serve a living God and he'll fight your battles. I love this. If you understand that framing the way David's framed it, there's no risk in this fight. There's none. You can't lose. So the idea that David has to muster some sort of false courage, it's real courage. Like he understands the situation. He's framed it the right way and he knows that he's got God on his side. He knows the word of God. He quotes the word of God and he's moving forward with what the word of God says with total confidence and certainty. To the men, David doesn't volunteer. He's talking to the men. Who of you are going to do this? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, verse 27, so it shall be done for the man who kills him. So the conversation now shifts between you know, Saul's reward to the pride of God's nation. The men have come to David's discussion. Verse 28, now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. So like David's like speaking to the men. Here's this kid giving him a, a tongue lashing. And his big brother comes up, and in Eli, Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And from whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? He's accusing him of abandoning his sheep. I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. This is, in summary, who do you think you are? You're not a soldier. You don't deserve to be here. You're the stinky cheese deliverer. Just do your job and leave. You're not ranking high enough. And his brother comes at him in anger in verse 28. He's actually mad. The only person to show up for Israel in 40 days with any kind of hope, and instead of saying thank you for the hope and for reframing this for us, his brother's actually angry at this character. Why are you so darn cheery when the world is falling apart? Why do you trust God so much when nobody around here, we all, we're all seeing this, the reality of the situation, and your head is in the clouds? That kind of accusation is brutal. It's brutal because this is his big brother who he was excited to come see, right? And just because he's speaking truth, but his brother's just putting him down. Eliab shows the type of critical spirit, and it explains why God passed over this guy. He just doesn't get it. He'd been another Saul if he got picked. He's a critic, and critics see flaws. And let's break down the flaws. Why did you come? He questions David's motive, right? And the reality is, David was obedient to his father. That's why he came. His father told him to come. With whom have you left the sheep? He's belittling David. You're just a sheep herder. This is what critics do. First, they question your motive. Then they question your status. David, the truth of the matter is, David actually assigned a manager to the sheep. He'd taken care of responsibilities, right? And the writer told us that earlier. So how dare insignificant people speak about significant things? That's a critic speaking. Don't listen to that. I know your pride and your insolence. Then his brother makes accusations of where his heart is at. It's amazing how critics put what's in their heart and they assign it to what's on other people's hearts. And that's what his brother's doing. He's assuming that David's heart looks like his heart. 
But David's heart is pretty pure here. So questioning his motive, why did you come? Belittling him, aren't you a sheep person? And then the pride and the insolence, direct accusations that are coming from a false understanding of David. And then last but not least, flat out lies. You have come down to see the battle. The only reason you're here, kid, is you want to see people get into a fight. So now you're trying to stir up a fight? We don't want to just go and die. So he's, he's flat out lying about why David's there in front of all the men, right? It doesn't say that Eliab pulled David off to the side. He's doing this in front of everybody. And he's putting David down. So Eliab looks the part. He's a big guy, 16, 7. Uh, chapter 16, verse 7. He's a big guy too. And it, he might be thinking David's trying to prod him into going out and fighting Goliath. And he's like, why are you pushing me to do this? You're trying to get me killed? You just want to see a fight? Eliab hates that David is speaking truth when deep down Eliab knows that, the, that he should be stepping up. And he's called to do it. And then I love this. David just says, verse 29, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Like, what a great way to respond to a critic. Have I done something wrong? I'm just charging forward with the love of Jesus and marching forward with my faith, and you're all mad at me for that? Have I done something wrong? Am I, am I guilty of something? Have I hurt you in some way? David actually asks for an action in light of false accusations. Like, tell me what I've done that's wrong. Don't tell me what's in my heart. Tell me what I've done that's the wrong thing. And if you can't name what I've done, then, then I'm innocent. I'm, I have nothing to answer to. What have I done now? It's a regular exchange. And is there not a cause? Have I not actually, have I done something wrong? Is there, is there a cause for your anger right now? Is there a reason you're so mad? So David wants to come with God's cause. Eliam's coming with his own cause. And then in verse 30, look at this. Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. David turns away from his brother and says, have I done something wrong? Am I speaking untruth? And he turns to somebody else. Have I done something wrong? Is there a cause for your anger? Is there a reason you're not fighting for God's people? And I just imagine David going to each person. How come you're not fighting him? How come you're not fighting him? Why aren't you doing what God's called you to do? Why is there no one here with the guts to do this? David's still not volunteering to do it himself. But at some point in humility, he's assuming that his elders are going to do the work. But then he looks around and he starts to realize nobody's going to do the work. Then he turned. In Romans 12, 18, it says, If it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And when he's got a critic in his face, his own brother, this has to just break his heart. His own brother is on his case about his convictions around the living God. And his brother's the one that steps up to be angry at him. It had to break his heart. His own family doesn't like that he's loving the Lord. And he's, and he's just gabbing with the men and he's having fun. He's just living life joyfully. And you can this jealousy is stirring up in his brother's heart. If David's serving God, then he doesn't owe an explanation to his brother, even though he's older. If David is not serving God, then he's completely insolent and he deserves everything his brother's given him right now. But if he is serving God, that's a higher authority than a brother. He doesn't owe other people an explanation. 
So the brother here is assuming authority that he just doesn't have. God never gave it to him. He anointed the youngest. He didn't anoint the eldest. So in reality, his brother should be answering to him. The insolence here isn't David's insolence. It's Eliab's insolence. Eliab's the one not understanding the authority structure that God set in place. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jodah. And then Jesus left them and departed. When we're dealing with critics, Jesus and David have the same reaction to critics. He says no, and he walks away. I'm not going to get into it with people with a hard heart because it doesn't do any good to argue with people. Nobody comes into the kingdom because they lost an argument. It doesn't work like that. So when you find that hard heart, that insolence, people that defy God and the, the authority God has, we see that God's people tend to just walk away from that. I'm not going to get into it with you. And he said the same thing. Despite the rejection that David did, he just keeps going. I love this about David. Getting rejected once or twice from a human doesn't stop him from boldly proclaiming the truth of God. He just keeps plowing away. And it does, he just keeps, he turns right in front of him and just starts preaching at the next person. I love this. This is where David wins this battle. Make no mistake, this is the spiritual battle. It's not the Philistines that, that he's at war with here. It's the hearts of his own people that he's at war with. But he wins this battle right here when he decides to keep speaking God's truth, even though his brother just yelled at him. I think this is the battle of David and Eliab. Goliath's irrelevant. He drops in a second. It's not even, it's, it's kind of a short climax. He just falls dead, right? But this battle with Eliab, this decision to keep preaching what God says, despite how my family reacts, that's a spiritual battle for all of us. But the war is on. The enemy's taunting him. He's critiquing him. And the kid says, I won't have that. You got my cheese, now you get to hear about my God. And I'm not going to put up with this. This is David and God. This is not David and Goliath. It's the story of a king rising to power. And Goliath is a speed bump in the way. David's kind of like, I, I don't even care if I die. This is about God's kingdom and I'm just a pawn. So it doesn't matter to me who fights Goliath. God's going to do his thing. Somebody just needs to take a step into the field. So it's kind of that idea that David understands by the light of God and Goliath defying him, it's like, you shall not pass. This is the end of the line. This is where warriors are born. There is a line that I'm not going to cross for you. And as Goliath sits there and defies the living God, David's like, no, 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 no. And he's not battling Goliath right now. He's battling other people that claim to follow the Lord God Almighty. And this is an interesting thing. And then verse 31. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul. Do you know there's this kid in the camp walking around looking for a fighter? So he, they report him to Saul, and then Saul sends for him. So he's in trouble. Like he, Now he's got to answer to the king. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him, Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistines. I'll do it if I have to. But think about who he's saying this to. His second major battle is not with Goliath. It's with Saul. He's looking at a guy that's easily a foot taller than he is, and he's the king of Israel. And he's like, let no man's heart fail because of him. One man in the room whose heart has failed is Saul. For 40 days, Saul has not fought God's battle. 
And here's this shepherd coming in and saying, you need to fight your battle. It, it resonates of how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why aren't you shepherding my sheep? Why aren't you doing the job you were called to do? And the same with the Pharisees. He just turns away from them when they don't fall. So <laughs> David's like, who's going to fight? And then they report him so to get him out of the camp. People don't really want to hear that sometimes. If they're living in fear, they don't want to hear that God's not okay with that behavior. And that's, it's a tough thing for us to hear. God doesn't want our hearts to fail. He wants our hearts to be full of courage and joy and just moving forward knowing that God's with us. So a lot of believers get slack from those that are closest to them. It's just a reality. It just happens. It's sad, but it does. Hope and hopeful people will eventually grate on the hopeless and the hopeless people. And we just, there's a natural friction that pops up so David's larger fights here are with his family and with the authorities of the place he lives. These are the battles that get a lot of text and attention in this chapter. And then verse 33, And Saul said to David, You are not able to go out against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. He's been training in war since he was born. He was bred for battle. That's why they bred giants. They made him to fight. You're just a shepherd kid, but David. <laughs> so, you know, Saul's basically, I can't send you out against this Philistine because you're going to die and we'll all be their slaves. However, that idea of being slaves, neither army is actually going to hold to that. The Philistines are lying. They're not going to serve as slaves when they lose. But David says to Saul, verse 34, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. In fact, he kind of still does. There's still a flock back there. And when a lion or a bear came up and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and I struck it and I delivered the lamb from its mouth. So he's punching the bear. Like he's up close with this thing. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and I struck it and killed it. That's a kid that can fight, right? Now these are not grizzly bears of North America, I'm just going to say. <laughs> These are probably black bears, brown bears. These are bears that you could whack up and smack them in the face and they might run away. They'd at least let your sheep go. But they're not grizzly bears. We're not talking about anything miraculous there. A good shepherd can scare off an animal pretty easily. And that's what he's doing. But he's saying that even after the animal got one of the sheep in its mouth, he would go up and smack that thing till it let the sheep go. Like, this is a fighter. This is his answer to Saul. I know how to fight lions and bears. What's this big, slow beast on the field? Your servants killed both a lion and a bear. But this uncircumcised Philistine, he reframes it for the king. He reframes it for Saul. This is an uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. It says the same thing he said to the men. David doesn't put on one face for the king and another face for the soldier. It's the same guy in both situations. That's what you call integrity. He doesn't put on a show. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. See, even if David dies, they're just going to run because Saul's not a man of integrity. But if he wins, yeah, who knows? Maybe the Lord is with you, kid. If you want to go out and fight this guy, you do. At this point, David volunteers to fight Goliath. He has fully realized 
None of the soldiers want to do this. The king doesn't want to do it. And then he says, well, maybe it's my, maybe God's asking me to do this. And when he makes that decision, there's no stopping him. He's convinced of it. He's not scared of Goliath because he knows how to fight. Now, I'm going to suggest to you, this is, not a lop, this is not a lopsided Goliath fight. There's a great book by Malcolm Gladwell that makes the same argument. And I'm going to give you kind of the highlights of that. David knows exactly what he's doing here. He's not going into this foolishly, and he's not expecting a miracle from, from God. He's expecting God to be with him with what he's been training to do his whole life. He's got confidence in what he's about to do. So when David says, or Saul says, you can't do this in verse 33, David's response is, yes, I can in verse 34. I can do this. So he's got a lifetime of winning battles where nobody could see him. And now God's going to put him on a showcase. But God doesn't put him on a showcase without a lifetime of beating lions and bears when nobody could see. He probably came home from the flock and said, hey, I killed a lion today. And his brothers are all like, no, you didn't. He's like, yeah, I did. And he's probably having these arguments, you know, and Nobody could see him fighting the lions and bears. Just him and God and the lions and the bears and the very grateful sheep. But in that, David knows that the bravery he needs for this battle, God's been preparing it for him for a long time. And he's been, he's been coaching David all along the way to where this moment happens. He's utterly given David everything he needs. To, God does not put us in situations he hasn't prepared us for. He just doesn't do that with his servants. On the flip side, God knew what David would be doing well in advance. And you can imagine that out in the fields, like the only job in the world where you got time to play with a sling is being a shepherd. If you're a carpenter, if you're doing the fields, you're harvesting, your hands are busy all day. Shepherds just get bored. And probably in David's spirit, what he liked to do is write some songs and sing. And now and then he would get up and he was just, I can imagine him at age 10 just being fascinated with the sling. And for some reason, he just loves using the sling. Not only that, but he loves getting a 100-yard shot and hitting it on a dime. And there's something in his soul that's just happy to hit the target, right? Grant and I went target shooting. And it's just, there's God, I'm imagining God wired David for this way long ago. And, and so he's been doing this. And that's humble work. It's work that nobody sees. But in doing the humble work, God prepares him for the, the work that's going to put him on showcase for all of Israel. But he's been shooting at lions and bears for a long time. And, it, and when he says Goliath's going to be like one of them, in verse 26 and 29, it was more like somebody should fight. In verse 32, it's, okay, I'll fight and I will kill him. Like, I will end this. David sees, he's the only one that sees this, which makes him the king of Israel. It makes him the man in the middle. It makes him the champion. It sets him up to lead because God's anointed him. And for a long time, he's had these things he's done in his spare time that happen to be a perfect fit for this. It's not pride. David's not saying this in pride. He sought other people first. But when nobody stepped up, it's like, I can do this and I'm not even worried about it. That willingness to serve, I think, is amazing. And I know this is dark, my wife would hate that I say this. Let's say I die of a heart attack next week. Will you guys finish getting through the Bible if I have to be gone? Like, it's a good question. And it's a question David asks. Because he's like, who's going to step up and fight Goliath? Well, nobody does. And David's like, okay, I guess it's me. So if something happened to me, I'm assuming somebody in this group would say, all right, Sean's gone. I'll teach the word. 
let's keep going. The next chapter is 1 Samuel, whatever we're in. Or we'll probably still be in, you know. You know what I'm saying? It's not arrogance to say, okay, I guess it's me. And I'll step up and do it, right? And I'm not saying I, I have heart flutters or anything like that. But that's the question. It's not about me. It's about the word of God and this mission of we're going to get through the whole dang book, every single word of it. And that's important. So the Lord who delivered me, it's not that David's a master fighter, but he's been delivered by God before, and that gives him confidence that he'll be delivered again. When he fought the lion, he probably thought, this is an iffy situation. I may not come out of this one, but I'm going to fight it because i got to protect the sheep. When he fought the bear, there's no guarantee he was going to win, but in each situation, he finds a way to win. So God's been building confidence in David for years. And each of those situations, like these are spirit-inspired animals that I need somebody else to train David. And the bear's like, I don't want to go fight him because I know he's going to kill me. And the God's like, you know, he's working with the animals. I I won't go too far down that path. But the Lord probably sent the lion and probably sent the bear because he wanted David ready to go. God looks over the entire planet for people with the heart and courage to serve him and the willingness to do faithful work when it's put in front of them. David had no idea this was going to happen. Remember, today started as a typical day for David. He was carrying sacks of grain, and now he's standing before the king of Israel. God did that, not David. Go and the Lord be with you. I think Saul thinks he's going to lose, but he's sending him off. Let's give Saul some credit. Let the Lord be with you. May God come through here. So this is maybe the first good decision Saul's made in his kingship. And that's probably God-inspired too. Okay, go do it. See how this works. So verse 38, Saul clothed David with his armor. <laughs> I'm going to send you out to battle, but you got to do it my way. Right? Put on the way, the way I've done it. Then He's not willing to fight David or Goliath, but he's willing to dress David up in how he would fight Goliath if he's going to. So he puts him in all this armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head. He also clothed him with a coat of mail. A lot of like the visualizations of this, you see David with like the helmet that comes, doesn't fit right and the mail that goes down to the floor. Reading this, it sounds like that's pretty accurate, right? Clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and he tried to walk <laughs> for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I can't walk with these for I've not tested them. So David took them off. The word tested there is I haven't ever fought in these before, so I don't know how to fight in these. The way you fight your battles, I don't even know how to do that. I don't fight battles the way you fight it. Jesus says something really similar. We fight battles that are of the spirit, not battles that are of the flesh. The world wants to fight this way. We don't even know how to fight that way. We fight in this other way. So he doesn't need the world's weapon. He throws them off. (laughs) He simply needs to know that God told him he would win. He prays about it. He has the fellowship of, of, with God. And pow, that's what he needs. So it's so ridiculously simple how this works. When we fight battles, we just need to know God's with us because he says he's with us. We pray about it. We're in fellowship. So we have some accountability to each other. And then pow, God wins battles. That idea that he knows himself enough to know how he has to walk and how he can't walk. It's just wonderful. That idea that he hasn't tested them. First uh, Thessalonians 5.21, test all things and hold fast to what is good. So he hasn't tested this stuff, so he's not going to trust it. So David took them off, and he throws off the things of this world, and he puts it to the side so that he can fight his battle. 
This is beautiful. Hebrews 12.1. Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that he has set before us. Get rid of the stuff of the world. It doesn't help you fight. It just slows you down. You can't walk in it. You know? If you're spending hours and hours and hours in Netflix, that's hours and hours and hours just slowing down your walk with the king. Right? It, 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 and it doesn't break you all by itself. I'm not saying that. It, armor is not a bad thing, but it's not how we fight our battles. It's not how we go out into the world. And then there's this great passage. Here comes the fight. Then he took his staff in hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in a shepherd's bag, in a pouch which he had. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near the Philistine. He steps out from the army all by himself. <laughs> that had to be a moment. But I don't get the sense from this that he was scared or tepid about it. He knew what he wanted to bring with him, and he brings the things that are familiar. The staff, your rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He has the pebbles, that he, the weapons that he's going to throw, and he puts them into his pouch and carries them with him, right? And then he's got this sling, that's an amazing weapon that we're going to learn about. So the Philistine came and began to draw near to David. And the man who bore the shield went before him. So it's two of against one. I just think that's so cheap. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was only a youth, ruddy and good looking. I like that that's just thrown in there. He's a good looking youth. It's, it feels really like Jewish to me. And he comes out and, he, and he's ruddy and good looking. Just kind of an added detail. He's a good looking guy. He'd make a good husband. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Goliath knows this is a spiritual battle. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Now we're in battle. It's a battle of words. This is actually incredibly wise on David's part. And this is what I'm saying. This isn't a lopsided fight. I think that's how the world paints this story. The mighty Goliath versus little David. Uh-uh. David knows how to fight. This is a lopsided fight in the other direction. In very practical ways. First of all, ranged weaponry, a sling, is better than hand-to-hand -hand weaponry. A sling is more accurate than a javelin. The staff that he has is really functional in ways that it's quick and fast. And he's little and small. One of the things with the gigantism is they don't move very fast. Their bones and their cartilage are outgrown. They're known for having locked knees and locked joints. So if you've ever watched Andre the Giant fight, he lumbers. He's not swift and nimble. So you bring swift and nimble weapons against a slow and plodding opposite force. This is really smart how he does this. He has speed and it's greater than brawn. This is a military truth. Speed beats strength every time. Ranged beats melee every time. A staff for a shepherd becomes a thing. This is, a staff is not really a weapon, by the way. A shepherd's staff is curved at the end. It's used for saving sheep because you can put it around the sheep and haul them out of whatever trouble they got into because sheep are not smart. So this idea that he brings in a tool of salvation into a battle to the death, he knows exactly what he's doing. This is about renewing the hearts of Israel so he shows them how to live as a servant versus a warrior. The five smooth stones. Why five stones? How many does it take to kill him? One. Why does he grab? Is it because he doesn't trust the Lord? 
He's lacking faith. There are records that we're going to get to. 2 Samuel chapter 21, there's a record of killing of four more giants. And they are all recorded, depending on the translation, they're either brothers of Goliath or they're children that Goliath has bred in, in, the, in the Philistine forces. These four were born in, uh, to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. And then they list them out. Either David or one of his mighty men kills the other four giants. So he grabs five stones like David knows exactly what he's doing. And there's these five giant men that he's going to... In other words, he's thinking past Goliath. He's, he's so not worried about what's going to happen here. Um, they all defied the living God, not just Goliath, and they're all going to go down for it. He grabs his sling. Now this is fun. This is where I geeked out this week. Ancient slings were so deadly and accurate, they actually still got used into the 1900s. Why? <laughs> not only can they take out a lion or bear, but what they do is they extend the fulcrum point of the arm. So if I can hit really hard, if I add a two-foot sling, it exponentially increases the force with which I hit. This is why we have sticks and then a weapon at the end of it. But a sling is even more so because you can start swirling it and then you extend it as a part of your arm and the fulcrum points way back at the elbow. The result of that is that an egg-shaped rock, which is what we see in the archeological record, they would use a little oblong-shaped rock, probably because when they spin, it creates a rifling type accurate, like it makes it go straight with the spiral on it. My engineers are nodding their heads. You're with me? I read a lot of stuff I don't understand. Um, but the two long leather straps come with a pouch at the end. There's a hole in the end of the pouch. So when I do the sling, I'm holding both straps, but I let go of one of them, and then this, the single strap lets go. But what happens is, as I spin this sling, I basically point at what I want to hit while I let go of one of the straps, and it shoots straight as an arrow at that spot. So statistically, is this even possible? First of all, yes. Um, University of Chicago, 2007, uh, did an archaeological dig, and they found one of these stones, these bullets, had pierced a one foot into a mud brick wall. The amount of force required to punch through a wall with one of these things is incredible. So the, the, that's evidence at the Battle of Hamilcar, if you want to look up the article. They're bullet-like. They were called bullets. They were, if you knew you were facing elephants in the ancient world, the Roman handbook says, bring slings. They're more effective than bows and arrows. Elephants can take bows and arrows, but a sling brings so much more force and power with it, and they hit the animal at twice the speed with no drag and no weight. In other words, if you've got to fight elephants, you bring a sling. You don't bring Saul's armor. Like, David knew what he was doing. All right, here's the other thing. There is no reason to believe that a professional slinger could not beat 100 miles per second or meters per second fairly easily and perhaps even begin to approach muzzle-like velocity of a 45 caliber pistol or about 150 meters per second with a sling. An average to good slinger could hit at the same force as a 45 caliber bullet, which is this big and a stone is this big. So physics people, mass times speed, or mass times speed equals force. So same speed as a 45 caliber. Am I wrong completely? Acceleration. Mass times acceleration equals force. 
So the acceleration is the same as a 45 caliber. The mass is triple to quadruple. So that's bad, right? So imagine you're shooting guns on an ancient battlefield, but you've got slingers to do it. So he's not bringing just a shepherd's sling to a battlefield. He's bringing the most high-impact weapon he could bring to this particular fight against a lumbering giant. And they're terrifying in battles. Um, this is from the Sumerian uh, poetry, um, collection of Samaritan poetry. From the city it rained bullet missiles from slings. As from the clouds, sling stones like the rain falling in a hole around us, they whizzed loudly and bounced off the walls of Aratia. Like, so when you hear bullets whizzing past you on the battlefield, that's what it was like when you're facing slingers. And again, these weapons are so different from Saul's, but they're absolutely superior to what they're using. The weapons God's given us, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, are so superior to anything the Word has. But you've got to believe it to know that what we have when we go into battle is so superior to what the enemy has. Goliath is about to meet 2.5 ounces, ounces of rock hitting him at 100 miles per hour from the distance of a football field. That's what he's charging into battle against. And David's like, I got this. He knows how to hit it because he's been sitting around for years shooting slings for fun, right? This is the equivalent of a rifle versus a sword. Absolutely. David, like Goliath's bringing a sword to a rifle fight. And it's not, it's not a fair fight. So, and he drew near to the Philistine. Not only is David going to talk the talk, but he actually walks the walk. This is where David's heart steps in. He's not just talking that he'll fight Goliath. He goes into the battle. And the man who bore this shield went before him. Goliath's still cheating. You know, I just, I think that's just cheating. He disdains him. This is the thing. The shield bearer would prevent the bullet. Or could, maybe if it's a heavy doodle bronze shield, that should stop the bullet. But it's the disdain of Goliath that opens up and exposes the target. Because Goliath should be hiding behind the shield. So many people want a show. And this battle happens really quick. And in the cartoon, it's all built up as this big thing. But it happens so fast. So fast. There isn't much of a show here. God gets this done, and it's really impressive. But what's, where Goliath loses is Goliath loses in disdaining what he sees in front of him. I don't respect you. I don't regard your God or your church. And in doing that, he looks about. Do you see that? He, which means he stands up. And he looks down at David, exposing himself to a slinger. That's not smart. So there's nothing in here that says Goliath's smart, but he just gave up his shield when he looks about. And he begins to draw near. Notice that he doesn't see David until he draws closer. He draws near first. Do you see that? So another issue with gigantism is that the skull overgrows the eyes. And oftentimes with gigantism, they go blind by age 30, age 35. So it's one of those just things we know about this physical condition that gets reflected here. And it's clear that Goliath can't see as well as David does. So when he gets close enough to see David, he disdains him. And then he throws this out. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Goliath is insulted. This is what you throw at me? This is what you think of me? 
Like, how arrogant is that? Like, you don't know what's about to hit you in the forehead, buddy. Actually, what he says there in my dog that you come up with sticks, it's worse than the English sounds, like a lot worse than the English. Um, the dog there, the word for dog is Caleb. And a Caleb in Deuteronomy 23.18 is a male prostitute. A dog is a, a male human that's been reduced to the level of prostitution. They're the lowest form. They get abused by everybody. Um, I'll keep it PG-13, and you know that male prostitutes get used. So when he says that you come at me with a stick, a rod or a staff, God's, Goliath is saying, are you coming at me with a male prostitute with a stick because you think I'm not that much of a man? Like, is this, you're just sending me a prostitute? Really? I wanted a fight and you're giving me this? So that's kind of what he's saying there. It's a huge insult. He does not regard him at all. He, he sees that he's a youth and that he's ruddy and good looking. So basically, Goliath thinks that they just sent him a sex slave, right? Really? This is, what, this is how you're going to appease me? So, or the PG version, he just calls him a dog with a stick, right? Here's a little puppy coming along with a stick. So that, that stick or staff is what Goliath sees. He sees the staff. He doesn't recognize the real danger. Evil is like this. Evil just keeps going in their arrogance, and they don't see the real danger is the sling in the other hand. The thing that's going to drop Goliath isn't the staff, but that's what he points out. When we shepherds care for our sheep with the staff, that's not a threat to the world. It's a joke to the world. When we pull out the word of God, the sword of the spirit, that's a threat. And I think sometimes people see that like, the people of God just being gentle and caring for sheep, and they don't see that we have a word of God in the other hand that can pierce the heart to the bone and the marrow. It's a weapon. Jesus uses this tactic in the parables. He says, therefore I speak in parables because seeing they don't see and hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand. Part of why Jesus teaches in parables is because evil can't really see what's the real danger there. They don't see the warfare and, and, and it helps them get blindsided. So Goliath loses the battle. I don't think this is a fair fight at all. Uh, it's, 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 if it's not already clear, this is a spiritual battle. So this idea this cursing that he does in the name of the gods this is his coffin like this is where he loses the battle David wins it when he stands up with his brother Goliath loses when he makes it a spiritual god he makes it about his gods versus the god that's a mistake for Goliath it's a bad strategic move he doesn't remember that the, all the Philistines got tumors when they took a box but now they're facing a human that represents God and he doesn't realize how much trouble he's in and the Philistine cursed David by the gods. Bad move. He could surrender here. He could run, but he doesn't. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Goliath doesn't want his flesh. Here's what I'm going to do with your flesh. So he's still thinking along the lines of, of, of a Caleb coming his way. So it connotes that after killing him, he's going to leave his body to rot. This is not an honorable thing to do even in the ancient world. So I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to let your body rot, and the birds and the, the animals are going to eat it. That's what I think of you. So as Goliath is bragging and boasting and defying, David starts to swirl his sling. And then David said to the Philistine, you come at me with sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you. I like his humility even there. The Lord's going to deliver him, not David. And take your head from you. And this day I will give your carcass to the camp of the Philistines, to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all the assemblies shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you to our hands. So Goliath is like, I'm going to leave your carcass. And David's like, no, I'm going to leave your carcass. <laughs> you don't understand, Goliath, how this is going to work. David, again, reframes it. It's like he's trying to teach Goliath, just like he did with his brothers. You don't understand, Goliath. You think you have weapons? I come at you with a living God. And he makes it super clear. He's putting, what I would say, he's putting God out in front. I'm going to fight a physical battle with you, but you don't understand. I'm a messenger from God. And I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. But I know what God said, and I believe it. And that's really all it takes. I'm going to give your flesh, says Goliath, versus the Lord will deliver you, says David. Your carcass versus David, your, the whole army's carcasses. You're thinking you're just going to kill me. I'm telling you, your whole army's in trouble, David, or Goliath. So the Lord of hosts, this is just amazing thing. The phrase Lord of hosts got used by Zechariah. What David's doing is he's quoting, like he's, he's bringing a concept up that's so much bigger than physical armies. The Lord of hosts includes all things celestial, all things angelic, all physical earthly armies, every, even probably some armies and forces we're not even aware of. And David's saying, I come at you at the name of a God that controls all authority and all hosts through all the universe. Don't you get it? You're in trouble, Goliath. And again, Goliath still has an opportunity to run. He could leave this fight and, and survive another day. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember, remember the Lord our God. David wrote that in Psalm 20. He's thinking about this even after it happens. People trust in their armies, but that's not where the fight is. So David makes a habit, read through the Psalms, of reframing the real battle and making it understood. I will strike you. Think of the audacity of this little farm kid. But he knows, he knows how to shoot a sling. He knows that he can hit it. A good slinger, because we still have like slinging competitions, a good slinger can hit the thickness of a quarter at 150 yards. David knows he can hit this big, huge target. And they're probably less than 150 yards. He knows he's going to hit. He knows it's going to hurt. Doesn't know what will happen after that. Then all his assembly shall know, God's going to reveal himself, Goliath. You're getting warned. For the battle is the Lord's. I'm not here to fight you. God's going to end you. You're being warned, Goliath. Watch out. I almost feel sorry for him right now. Trusting in the Lord isn't a joke. It's not flippant. It's not passive. It's not esoteric. It's real and it's powerful and it affects how we interact with people. It's actually a strategic choice to trust in the Lord. Well, it doesn't seem like you're doing anything. Nope, I trust in the Lord. I'm going to see how he does this. He will give you into our hands. It's not timid. He's not begging Goliath. He's warning him. Please don't do this, Goliath. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran towards the army to meet the Philistine. He doesn't run towards Goliath. He runs towards the Philistine army. Think of that. David's past Goliath already. It's over. God's already done this. It's just a matter of carrying it out. 
the verbs show in the, in the, that Goliath here is lumbering. So the Philistine arose and came and drew. There's this kind of buildup for Goliath. He's not a fast guy. And then David, look at his verbs, hurried and ran. Boom, he's on it. There's speed with David. And the writer's trying to show that to us. With David, there's no wavering. There's no getting up and coming and drawing near. David, Goliath attacks. David attacks the other army. And he's got one guy in his way before he, he's charging the army before he even gets to Goliath. I just think that's awesome. David's boldness now is now full speed. Like, this is cool. He started out going, hey, which of you is going to fight this guy? But now he's like, I'm going to fight you. I'm going to fight your whole army. Like his boldness keeps getting bigger as he serves the Lord. And it keeps growing. He runs before attacking. There's no hiding. There's no cowering. There's no capitulating. There's no trying to negotiate at this point. He's shown his metal. And, and Goliath is shown where his heart is. So at this point, it's like, let's put my God against your God. Let's go. What a scene. This big guy running at this little kid. This little kid running full speed. Anything less... Maybe the army of the Israelites are going, oh, David's terrified. But they don't see a terrified young boy running at a giant. They see an enthusiastic champion going out at full speed. Then David, verse 49, then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone. I'm sorry, I said he started spinning it before. I'm not biblically. After he starts running, he reaches in, takes out a stone, slung it and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. Remember, he was running at David, so his momentum is going forward. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. That's it. Boom, battle's over. Like I said, it's not... The battle's the rest of the chapter. This is just the conclusion, right? Boom, David prevails over the Philistine with the sling and stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore, David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. That's grisly and graphic. The stone sinking into the forehead again, one of the issues with the gigantism is that that bone doesn't grow at the same speed as the body. So we know about gigantism, one of the great health hazards they have is that their skulls aren't very thick and hard. So the stone sinking into it, normally our forehead's one of the strongest bones in our body, can take a lot of force, but with gigantism it's pretty easy to crack that skull. And the spot he hits in the forehead is a weak spot in, a, in, a, in the skull of somebody with gigantism. So medically we kind of know that. Um, again, that's all coming from the Malcolm Gladwell book. Uh, sinking into the cranium <clears throat> would mean that the skull's been cracked. A cracked skull doesn't mean you die. But it does mess you up pretty bad. So, uh, so it is medically accurate that the, front, the prefrontal lobe has a lot to do with our personality. But you can take great damage to your prefrontal lobe and not die. And you can live. In this particular situation, though, it says it struck the Philistine and killed him. So it did kill him. It, it actually... Uh, not only knocked him out, um, <clears throat> but here's the thing. The word for killed in verse 50 is muth. It means to dispatch or to kill um, with, without a motivation. It's not murder. It's just a, a legal killing of someone. But the word for muth could also be to dispatch someone or to take care of them. So in verse 50, it says, 
that he dispatched him would be one way to read that. And then in verse 51 with the sword, he took the sword out and killed him. That's the same word, muth, being used a second time. So David dispatched him and then he killed him. And it's the same word. Some people think Goliath is too big to beat. David looks at the whole situation and thinks Goliath is too big to miss. Like, I can't lose. And I honestly think that's what God does for us. He just changes our perspective. What looks too giant and massive can be beaten with the right heart. Right? That's what the Revolutionary War soldiers had to think about England. And we're seeing right now on the planet Earth people fighting for their freedom in Eastern Europe against a massive military force. This looks impossible. It's not impossible. People can't govern people who don't want to be governed. So you have people that fight, and sometimes that happens. And biblically, sometimes God's people are called to fight, actually physically fight. But this is why we fight. It's because God's name is being besmirched by this guy. He fell on his face to the earth. That phrase, interestingly, is the exact same phrase we saw back in 1 Samuel chapter 5 when the Ark of the Covenant went into the temple of Dagon and the temple of Dagon fell upon its face to the earth before the Ark of the Lord. It's the exact same phrase. And I don't think that's an accident. Goliath, a servant of Dagon, falls on his face just like the statue of Dagon fell on its face. Or if you want to, you know, he makes me lie down in green pastures, but that's a bad application of that verse. Goliath was never really the enemy here. I don't think this is David versus Goliath. The enemy here is a spiritual enemy. Goliath and David aren't equal, right? It's one of those things where David has four more stones in his pouch. He's going after the whole army. David is seeing himself plus God equaling more than that army. It's David versus the Philistines. And Goliath's just a guy. So, you know, a better way to look at this is this is the story of David and God. David rising to power as king because he's the anointed one. Goliath is not his equal. So to say David and Goliath, I don't think that represents what we just read. And, and then it keeps going. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So they lied. They're supposed to stick around and be servants. Remember the deal? Like I, when you make a deal with somebody and you lose a bet, th that's really bad to renege on your deal. Even today, this is bad form. So instead of sticking around to be slaves, they all run away. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and the, and the gates to Ekron, which is a Philistine city. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sharim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. They chased them all the way back to their cities. And then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents and, the, the, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in the tent. Okay, that's weird, right? They didn't have pickling services, right? So this is a human head that he cuts off. This is really grisly. Um, the fact that the army then shouts and pursues, it's amazing how when one guy has hope and courage, how inspirational that is for everybody that's watching. It only takes one person that says, I really don't care, I'm going to follow God. And people are just like, I'm with that. I'm on board. And when David beats Goliath, the hope and the energy of Israel just rushes through the army. you got to think for Saul, this makes him really jealous. Because he wasn't able to do this. It says that they wounded people, Kalal in the Hebrew. 
they slain or pierced people. So this is a gory scene. There's no way around it. They absolutely slaughter these Philistines. They kill them. They pierce them. David took the head. <laughs> Likely speaking, there are, we know the Egyptians did mummification. There were ancient forms of preservation for human bodies. And David maybe knew some of that, which makes you wonder if there's a bear head and a lion head back in his tent. Right? So just a thought on that. But taking a prize was something people would do when they had conquered. The Greeks did this too. If you conquered a mighty lion or a tiger, you'd keep their head as a prize. You're treating them like a beast when you do that. So when he cuts off this head, that's not part of Jewish law. He's doing it as though they're a beast and he's keeping Goliath's head because he said he would kill him just like a lion or a bear and now he's treating him just like a lion or a bear just so you get the connection there. When it says he brought it to Jerusalem, David doesn't take Jerusalem for years, right? So Jerusalem at this point is in the hands of the, Jer the, the, the Jeru or th they haven't conquered that city yet. So chronologically, it's going to be years later that they conquer Jerusalem and David still has this guy's head. Right, This sign of victory. Now, spiritually speaking, when God wins great victories, we should be remembering those victories. And I see this as kind of a thing going, remember back when we were scared of this guy and now his head's hanging on the wall. Yes, this is the ancient wall world. It's, it's a little, puts his armor in there too. There's an irony here um, that the armor is taken as a trophy. I before told you Goliath's name meant to get naked. And that's exactly what David does to Goliath. He Goliath's Goliath. And he takes his clothes. Uh, and his splendor is now exposed. So uh, the sword of Goliath then gets used later, and in, in, in the priest has it in chapter 21. So he also takes the sword, even though it's not mentioned. And then it occurred to me that's twice that Goliath's sword doesn't even get mentioned. And if you're thinking imagery-wise, like the weapons of this world aren't relevant but the sword of the word of God is relevant. And you just think of how that kind of fits when it comes to imagery here. All of David's a prelude to Jesus on the cross. He goes willingly to the fight. He's sent by his father to go into the battle. Jesus is representing us. Jesus gets scorned by his family and the leaders of the day. Jesus goes in with no armor. He's mocked. Uh, the enemy thinks he's won to the point where Jesus has to use different weapons to conquer sin and death. Um, the he brings a staff with him, or the, a cross is kind of what he does. There's a victory from certain death, which Jesus assured his disciples before the fight was fought would happen. And that victory brings salvation for all of God's people. The mirroring with David and Jesus is phenomenal. Like, it just keeps going. And it will keep going. So, And then, last but not least... The end result of Jesus' victory is that God's people go forth in victory. We've already won. We just got to clean it up. It, it's like an image of the cross, and then David's life becomes a primer for how we live in Christ, how we should live after the. But this fight with David and Goliath looks a lot like Jesus conquering sin and death on the cross. Now what? How do we live then? Verse 55, when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine... He said to Abner, so we're going back in time. This is when David's walking out into the field. Saul turns to Abner, the commander of the army, and says, Abner, whose, whose son is this youth? And Abner says, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. I don't know who this kid is. 
So the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. And then David, as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Jesus rises from the dead. Whose son are you? I'm the son of God. The identity of David gets found out after he conquers sin and death. Just like Jesus. It's a great metaphor. Seems like Saul, first of all, doesn't pay attention to his harp players because he would have known him from harp playing. Um, he's not tuned into who's serving him. Uh, it seems like when Saul was distressed, he wasn't tuned into it. It's an addition to the text. Verse 55 through 58 clearly doesn't fit chronologically in the text. So there's kind of a mid-battle and then an after-battle. But the writer's trying to show us this relationship between Saul and David because that's where the story is headed. So it's kind of setting us up for the next chapter. I like how David answers him saying, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. When we're in a particular situation with David, <clears throat> he still keeps his humility. I'm the son of your servant, Jesse. I'm less than your servant. And David's humility is unlike Saul's in that as he gains prominence, Saul got cocky. As David gains prominence, he keeps his humility. So who are you? And he's like, buddy, I'm just a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a child of a living God. That's all I am. I'm nothing more, nothing less. And I think we can answer really with that humility too. Who do you think you are? I'm just a servant of God. I'm just saying what the Bible says. I'm like a broken record. Be faithful, be responsible, take care of your business, know God's word, speak for God, stand for God, and when he tells you to run, you charge. That's David, that's us. That's how we're supposed to live. If you feel like you're too small, like these are the obvious applications of Goliath. If you feel like you're too small, get your eyes off yourself. If you feel like you're hurt by other believers, get your eyes off of them. If you feel like Goliath is too big, don't take your eyes off Goliath. Our eyes should be affixed to the living God. Family, we're in really good company with David. We just want to serve the king. And we're going to keep our eyes on the king and keep our eyes on the Lord who fights our battles for us. We don't have to. Luckily, as Christians say, we don't have to pick up slings and go do sling practice, though it would be fun, and yes, I would do it, Grant. We don't have to do that. We're not here to fight those kinds of battles. We fight a different kind of battle with different kinds of weapons. And Jesus taught us what those weapons are. Prayer, fellowship, study in the word, and worship. Those are our weapons, and we do them, and we march forward. So the next, this is the cool part, I just, the next chapter, Jonathan and David are going to get to be really good friends. We're getting set up right now, because as David does this, there's people in that Israelite army watching him going, that's the guy I want to follow. And the king's own son, Jonathan, recognizes this young man, he's got what I want in the kingdom of God. So he's going to just serve him. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing of the story of David and Goliath. We all know it. We've heard it since we were kids. We just thank you for that gift. What a, what a blessing. Uh, Lord, we know that there are giants um, and that it's not a fair fight when they're going up against you. So Lord, help us to just go forward this week anointed and blessed. Help us to go forward this week and know that there is nothing in this world that stands against the power of your word and the truth of your, your kingdom. Lord, give us courage. It's scary sometimes as we face things that we look at as giants. Um, but Lord, give us the right perspective. Help us to be more like David, where we reframe it and we understand what we're really dealing with. 
Lord, help our hearts to be aligned before we try to align anything outside of us. Help us to first fix ourselves on you, to spend years with the sheep, years singing songs, years doing those things, Lord, to prepare our hearts for what you've called us to do. Help us to go forward once we're called with no fear, no hesitation, and to march forward. Lord, help us to not pick up the weapons of this world to do battle with this world. Help us to take the, the, the gifts and the things you've raised us with and be confident and trust in the strength of the Lord. Help you to be our shelter, Lord, that you're our shepherd. You make us lie down in green pastures. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Lord, we just want to be those kind of servants. And lead us to water, Lord. Lead us to your living water that fills our souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.